Welcome to Making Coffee, a behind-the-scenes look at what goes into making one of the world's favorite beverages. I'm your host, Lucia Solis, a former winemaker turned coffee processing specialist. Thanks for joining this week's episode. Hello, my friends, and welcome to episode 41. Before we get started on today's topic, I have a quick note. Living isolated in the middle of a coffee farm at the top of a mountain, it's tempting for me to feel like events happening across the world aren't relevant to me. But as we know, the coffee industry is global and very connected. Last year, I met Aliona from Yellow Place Coffee in Ukraine and Nico from Camera Obscura in Russia. Both are patrons and both came to Colombia to visit me when they purchased yeast-treated coffee in November 2021. I was also recently in Honduras with another Russian client, Ruslan, from Silky Drum. We had a successful visit together in Honduras, but when we got home, his country was at war. I generally ask for a deposit before my trips, but the majority of my fee comes after my visit. This means that when he got back to Russia, he would need to do a bank transfer for the remainder of my fee. The U.S., Canada, and Europe are tightening financial restrictions on Russia with a new ban that blocks seven Russian banks from using SWIFT, the global messaging system that enables bank transactions. It was an odd moment to be reading the news and to think, wait, I'm expecting a bank transfer from a Russian bank. Because usually when I read the news, it has very little to do with me. Suddenly, the economic consequences in Russia could directly impact me from receiving my consulting fee and paying for my life in Colombia. In addition to my Russian friends who were being affected, I was able to message Aliona, who was on the ground in Ukraine, and get information from a person who was living in the chaos instead of just reading about the events on the internet. I also had the opportunity to meet another patron, Lukash. Lukash is a roaster from Czechia. He came to spend several months in Santuario, and we got to know each other quite well. He is currently hoping to join the International Foreign Legion to defend Ukraine. Coffee has allowed me to meet wonderful people and call Russians, Ukrainians, and Czech people my friends. I wish them well during this difficult time. And if you want to contribute to the humanitarian cause, Aliona shared a link with me that I will have in the show notes if you want to contribute. If you're looking for a different way to support Ukraine, here's a tip that I learned that directly benefits entrepreneurs. Use the Etsy search function to find sellers specifically in Ukraine who sell digital products. Um, For example, think knitting patterns, digital art downloads, planner templates, etc. Even if the person is in another country right now, they should still be able to access the funds and there's no shipping slash making anything with digital downloads. This is one way to ensure resources go directly to struggling small business owners. Plus, Etsy is waiving all Ukrainian seller fees in the show of support. Okay, switching gears. So I'm currently back in my home in Colombia after three weeks away. I spent 10 days in Guatemala and 11 days in Honduras. After 13 months working exclusively on a farm in Colombia, I took on two new clients in 2022, both in Honduras. I went back to Guatemala first because my Colombian visa expired and Nick and I were basically getting kicked out of the country. Since I'm a Guatemalan citizen, we decided to go to Guatemala instead of flying all the way back to the United States. Plus, I had the two jobs in February in neighboring Honduras. So on January 30th, basically 24 hours before our visa expired, Nick and I packed a bag and left our fur babies, Coco and Luna, with a friend and headed to the airport. If you follow me on Instagram, you might have seen that a routine dental cleaning turned into a surprise root canal and a very expensive dentist visit. The goal of the trip was not medical tourism, but it's kind of what ended up happening. 
I got to spend time with my mom and grandmother in Guatemala, and that was nice. But overall, the trip was a difficult one because it involved intensive, painful dental work and because our future in South America is very uncertain. Due to the way the dates fell, I spent my birthday, February 9th, alone at a border crossing. I hired a driver to drive the five hours from Guatemala City to the border with Honduras. I was the only person trying to cross the border this day, at this time, and my host had delays, so I had to spend a few hours sitting outside the steps of the immigration building as night fell. I felt kind of like a kid whose parents forgot to pick them up after soccer practice. The place was empty, and very few people were crossing that day, and I was there when the offices were closing, and it was getting darker and colder. You know, walking across borders is an interesting experience. We cross borders all the time in airplanes. You start in one country and land in another. But physically walking across an imaginary line really puts into perspective how arbitrary boundaries are. I've walked four different borders so far. The first from Guatemala into Honduras, from El Salvador into Guatemala, from Mexico into the United States. That was a really long line. Uh, during, if anyone's ever been to the Tijuana crossing, it's, it's intense. Tijuana into San Diego. Um, and the last one, from Rwanda into Burundi in Africa. I was reminded of this border crossing in Africa because I recently got a WhatsApp message from former client Sam from Boof Coffee in Rwanda. Catching up with Sam reminded me of one of the first episodes of the podcast. In episode three, I talked about the best cup of coffee I ever had and the worst. The best was in a hotel breakfast buffet about an hour outside of Kigali. The cup of coffee was striking because logic dictated that it should be bad. As a coffee-drinking novice, I had the impression that making a good cup of coffee was difficult. I think the specialty coffee industry inadvertently reinforces this with all of the brewing and barista competitions. When you see others getting awards for coffee preparation, it can be intimidating for a layperson to know where to start. I thought that to truly have a cup of coffee that was worthy of being called specialty, it needed to be roasted within a certain time window. It shouldn't be too old or stale, but it also shouldn't be too fresh off roasting. I thought I needed a particular grind size so that the surface area of my particles was the right ratio for the water I was going to use. I thought I needed a particular mineral content in the brewing water to fully extract the flavors. That the water should be close to boiling, but not actually boiling. I needed to have solid hand-eye coordination to pour my water at a steady flow rate over the grounds of coffee to avoid over or under extracting the grounds. And to best accomplish this, I needed a gooseneck kettle. And I needed a brewer with the right paper filter, and a scale that had enough sensitivity and quick reaction time to let me know that I was pouring the water within the required specifications. And then after all that work, you wouldn't pour the coffee into an ordinary cup. I wanted a double-walled glass or ceramic mug with a white interior to be able to see the color of the coffee. And, most importantly, no milk. I never liked milk, but I knew that I should not disrespect the coffee by adding milk to my pour-over. No one ever sat me down and said, Lucia, this is specialty coffee. It's just something that I picked up and internalized. But because it wasn't explicit, for a long time, I didn't know how deeply I associated these rituals with specialty coffee until that May 2018 in Rwanda when I had a cup of coffee that was so fruity and balanced and seamless, and it broke all of those rules. That cup of coffee was not prepared with the exact precision usually reserved for medical professionals. It was sold at the gas station across the street, pre-ground. It was roasted and brewed in an ordinary way. It was prepared in large volumes. It came from a carafe that was sitting for a long time on a buffet table in the lobby of a hotel outside of a main road. And yet, the flavors blew my mind. 
I loved it then, and I still have fond memories now when I remember drinking it. The experience helped change the paradigm I had that brewing skills were essential to specialty coffee, that they went hand in hand. It also helped challenge the paradigm that specialty coffee must exist in the context of good brewing. This experience helped form my opinion that perhaps a good coffee, from a production point of view, is one that is so robust that it doesn't require all the theatrics in order to taste good. Or, if you think about it another way, that if the planets need to align in order for one to brew a good cup of coffee, why do we believe that that is what makes coffee good? This helped form my opinion that if the only way a coffee can taste good is if it meets all of those conditions, then that is a high-maintenance coffee and therefore of inferior quality compared to a coffee that is effortlessly delicious. This past month, I had another opportunity to revisit this theory. Catherine from Or Coffee in Belgium contacted me to visit a beneficio in Honduras with her. This is the first of the two clients I went to see in Honduras. At the hotel on the first morning of work, I went to the breakfast area. Catherine had bought coffee from Ethiopia to share. She had been carrying it around in a Tupperware pre-ground for at least a week. So in terms of preparation, at least we didn't need a grinder, but at the hotel, we didn't have a scale or a gooseneck kettle either. But I really wanted to try the coffee, so I asked the kitchen for a mug of hot water. We eyeballed a spoonful into the filter, and then because you cannot elegantly pour out of a ceramic mug, basically I dumped the hot microwaved water into the pre-ground coffee and watched it quickly drain through. No theatrics, no skill or beauty, no optimum extraction, and subpar water. The coffee traveled from Africa to Belgium to be roasted, and then it was ground and put in a suitcase and traveled through Costa Rica for a week before getting to our hotel table in Honduras. This was probably not the freshest coffee. And yet, the resulting cup of coffee was better than I had had in days. Previously, I had been in Antigua in proper coffee shops where they use the right water, proper grind setting, scales, and brewing equipment, and I had had very good cups of coffee. And yet here I was with none of that and still having a really pleasant cup of coffee. The Ethiopian natural was so dense with flavor and quality that it seemed almost immune to ruining. Even if we didn't know what we were doing, that coffee was going to shine. The purist in me believed that if the raw material was so strong, even mediocre roasting or bad brewing couldn't hide the essence of the seed. Shouldn't a good cup of coffee be one that is effortlessly delicious? Why do we believe effort makes it taste better? Let's put that aside for a moment and look at the effort factor from another perspective. I mentioned in a previous episode that in 2020, I was sent a box of Cometeer coffee, and it arrived at my house in Cleveland. One of the first things that struck me about that coffee was a giant carbon footprint it must have had because of how much packaging is involved in shipping it. It must be shipped frozen in dry ice, and the box that arrived at my door looked big enough to contain a large Thanksgiving turkey, not several small pucks of frozen coffee. Um, I'm not going to go into the sustainability issues or packaging concerns. I think Christopher Farron does a good job of breaking that down on his Instagram stories. I will link to his account in the show notes, and you can see the story at any time as highlights on his main profile page. But what I do want to talk about is the user experience my user experience. After the initial first impression of the massive packaging container and all of the printed marketing materials claiming how sustainable the product is, I finally got to the coffee. Inside the large box were four smaller boxes with eight capsules each of frozen coffee. One from Counterculture, another from Birch Coffee, then Joe Coffee, and the last one was from George Howell. 
32 cups of coffee in all. I've never been a fan of instant coffee, and even though what I held in my hands was technically instant coffee, it was a new kind of instant. It wasn't dried crystals that dissolved in hot water, it was a frozen puck of coffee concentrate that you diluted in hot water. I talked to Ariel and Alessandro from Momo Tostadores in Argentina during a Discord Live a few weeks back. After they did their podcast episode about their reactions to Cometeer, I invited them to talk more about it for the Patreon community. If you're new here, you might not know that for supporters of the podcast, I do a live office hours where listeners can interact with me and ask questions of me or each other. It's kind of like a podcast after the podcast. We record them and they're available for patron members to watch later if they can't make it live. Anyway, the conversation with Ariel and Alessandro was a really lively conversation. We talked about the environmental impact, our personal impressions, and some of the problematic messaging. And I remember Ariel interrupting at one point and asking, but was it even any good? Basically, we can theorize and intellectualize from many angles, but at the end of the day, what most people want to know is, does it taste good? Is the instant coffee worth the hype? Initially, I was skeptical that frozen coffee could be good, or that I could enjoy it. And yet, when I poured the hot water over the frozen puck and drank it, I was immediately taken aback. It was delicious. Like, really, really delicious. Like, yeah, I might even say it's up there with the best cups of coffee I've ever had. It tasted technically perfect. Flawless. The first one I tried was a blend called Alchemy from George Howell. If you're new to the podcast, I also suggest you go back and listen to my interview with George Howell. It's episode number 14, and it's great to hear someone with his experience in the industry reflect in a really candid manner. Anyway, back to the coffee. It was a genuinely balanced, effortless cup of coffee. I remember looking at the remaining 31 capsules and thinking how much I was looking forward to drinking those coffees. I wanted to simultaneously share the experience with others and keep them all to myself. I've mentioned that I felt troubled and uncomfortable about Cometeer from a philosophical point of view. I didn't air the interview that I recorded with the spokesperson because I was deeply troubled by the new product. But never did I doubt the deliciousness of the coffee. The coffee is damn good. At the time, though, I felt like having a good cup of coffee was not worth the trade-off of a large carbon footprint. Like, yeah, the coffee was amazing, but so what? It sort of seemed besides the point. Was me enjoying a good cup of coffee for 12 minutes worth the impact on the planet? I didn't think so. But it wasn't just the sustainability and marketing that I questioned. That first day, Nick and I savored the first cup we made, minds blown over how good the instant coffee was. Over the next few days, we tried all four coffees and all were excellent. We tried the hot and cold method, all with tremendous success. Congratulations to Cometeer. The technology is incredible and the coffee is truly very delicious. Another thing I would like to congratulate them on is another problem they solved, which I think is brilliant, and this is the problem of water. Since water qualities and mineral content can vary so much from place to place, the same coffee can taste very different when you buy a bag in a certain city that you love, and then you go to your house and you make it with different water, and it just doesn't taste quite the same as when you bought that bag of coffee. With Cometeer, the extraction is done for you with optimum water. They do the most difficult part. When you dilute it at home with your suboptimal water, it's negligible because that is not the water that is used for extraction. Your suboptimal water doesn't ruin the coffee. This is an excellent point for consistency, and consistency is one of my core values, so I love this very much. And yet, 
Despite the flavor and consistency, the following week we brewed our coffee the regular, effortful way while the capsule sat taking up space in the freezer. Over the next few weeks, we would use a capsule here and there, but they lasted in the freezer a lot longer than I initially thought they would, especially when remembering how amazing the coffee tasted after my first sip. After a few months, getting tired of seeing the capsule sitting in the freezer taking up space, I decided I needed to get rid of them. I kept traveling with them, trying to pawn them off on friends. If we went to a friend's house down the road, I would bring a puck. If we visited family on the weekend, I would bring several pucks. Initially, I thought I would have trouble sharing, and then a little while later, I couldn't offload them fast enough. So what happened? This experience reminded me of something I had heard about Betty Crocker. To my international friends, Betty Crocker is an American food company that makes things like pancake batter and cake mixes and frosting in a can. After World War I and World War II, as the men went to war, more women had to join the workforces, and they had less time to be at home and cook. In America, in the 1940s, fewer women were baking at home than before. Troubled by this trend, the company Betty Crocker was concerned about their sales of wheat flour. They thought if they made the recipes easier and had all of the ingredients in the box, they could get more women to buy their products and bake at home. They knew women had less time in the kitchen, so they needed to create products that were fast and convenient. They made bread and cake mixes so easy that all you had to do was buy the box and add water. Cake mixes were a way to sell a lot of flour, so it seemed like a slam dunk, like they should have sold boxes and boxes of cake mixes, but it turns out that product was not very popular. Baking a cake is something that comes from the heart, something that you made because you love someone else says Laura Shapiro, a historian and author of Something from the Oven, Reinventing Dinner in the 1950s America. People felt that if a cake was made in a box, it was cheating. It didn't count as a love poem that it was intended to be. There was something soulless about a cake from a box. And so sales were stagnant and flour companies were at a loss on how to fix the problem. Then comes along Ernest Dichter, a psychologist and marketing consultant, he told the companies that to take the dried eggs out of the cake mix and put them back in the hands of the baker. He realized the cultural problem of soullessness. He realized that the women who were making the cakes didn't feel emotionally invested enough just adding water. He believed that adding your own eggs would make it feel more like baking. Ernest Dichter is known as one of the founders of modern consumer behavior studies and a pioneer of focus groups. You know, another thing I find interesting about this part of history is that the companies were not flying blind. At the time, companies like Betty Crocker, General Mills, and Pillsbury did surveys and asked women what they would prefer. To avoid the problem of investing in a product that wouldn't sell, they directly asked women what they wanted. Option A, the easier all-in-one option, or option B, the one where you had to buy a box and provide your own eggs. When asked, the women gave the intellectual answer. The point was convenience, so they said they would rather buy the all-in-one, the easier version. So that's what the companies made. They made the thing their customers told them they wanted. But when it came to their actual behavior, it was emotional, not intellectual. Emotionally, they preferred the fresh eggs, even if intellectually they knew the all-in-one was easier and quicker. But this feature of convenience, the thing that was supposed to attract their customers, was the very thing that held women back from buying the cake mixes. Because it was so easy, it felt like cheating. They felt like baking a cake should require effort because it was a symbol of love and caring. And even when asked directly, they couldn't articulate what they actually wanted. 
And so for many years, cake sales suffered until the companies went against what their customers said they wanted and just took the eggs out. We all want a way to demonstrate our love, says Laura Shapiro. For many of us, making coffee is a way to demonstrate love. When Nick brews his coffee in the morning and hands me a cup, I feel loved. I am handed warm proof of his effort to think about me. The cafe that I have visited most in my life is a Phoenix coffee shop in Ohio City. It was two blocks from my house, and for three years, I was there almost daily. There were many baristas who were all technically skilled and lovely people. But there were a few who made coffee with love, and it tasted better when Joanna made it because I could feel the love and care she put into making coffee. With cake mixes, simply adding water to the mix didn't make people feel like they were making something. They weren't emotionally invested. And I think that's what happened to me with Cometeer Instant Coffee. The convenience is part of the selling point. They know that it can take a lot of equipment and practice to make a good cup of coffee. Part of the message is that they democratize good coffee. You no longer need to spend hundreds of dollars on a scale and grinder and kettle and a brewer to enjoy good coffee. The equipment is expensive and sometimes hard to find, so having good gear shouldn't get in the way of enjoying coffee. Expense and equipment shouldn't be a barrier to enjoying coffee. Or water. Do you guys know that some coffee people go as far as making water to make their coffee? They buy gallons of distilled water and pre-made packets of minerals by a company called Third Wave Water. They remineralize the water for optimum flavor extraction. And if you live in a city with very hard water, this could taint every cup of coffee you make, so for many, it's a worthy investment. But Cometeer makes even that step unnecessary. With Cometeer, anyone can have a good coffee, immediately, regardless of where you live, the quality of your water, the gear you can afford, or your individual barista skills. I really like this point. I think this is really important to mention that there is a place for this product. However, this has a shadow side. Because by removing the barrier or skill or brewing equipment, you also remove me, the equipment user. If you remove the equipment, then you also remove the person who uses the equipment and you also remove their satisfaction of participating in the process. And it's that effort that makes it taste good when I make a cup of coffee for myself or when I make it for someone else to show love. I didn't understand this at first. Initially, I was wowed by the flavors and the technology that brought this deliciousness into my kitchen. But subconsciously, very quickly, I felt dissatisfied with the product. I felt like I no longer had a role. I felt like I had nothing to do with my own coffee, and my enjoyment of coffee, even the most delicious and technically perfect coffee, diminished. Not participating in the coffee-making process affected the coffee-drinking experience, and then the coffee didn't taste as good to me. Like with baking cakes, the effortlessness worked against the overall coffee enjoyment. Most of us who drink specialty coffee like to be part of the process, even though we often do it poorly. Most days, I would rather have a mediocre cup of coffee that I participated in than be handed a technically perfect brew without any effort on my part. Humans love ritual. I love the sound of the whole beans hitting the scale. I love the aroma as I grind the coffee. I love the short meditation I engage in as I try to pour my water consistently and hit my 2 minute and 30 second brew time. And sometimes, I have to admit, I like making coffee more than I like drinking it. I think I've even mentioned this on the podcast before that Nick and I like to kind of race in the mornings to see who gets to be the one to make coffee first. So a technically perfect flavor profile doesn't make me appreciate coffee more. 
In fact, in this case, it had the opposite effect. It reminded me of an anonymous product. When I think about making quality coffee, or when I think about making specialty coffee, it's important to me, and I believe it should require effort. I also recently saw an example about effort versus outcome from John Oliver's show This Week Tonight. It was about Mount Everest. I also really recommend the Netflix documentary called 14 Peaks about NIMS. He's a Nepalese mountaineer that climbs the 14 tallest mountains in the world in seven months. NIMS is a superhuman, but the John Oliver piece on Everest was all about the people who aren't NIMS, the regular Joes who want to climb Everest with little or no climbing experience, the ones who want to take the picture or check it off a bucket list. Turns out, Everest is quite touristy. And there's a lot of support from the Sherpas who guide the climbers. And while climbing Everest used to symbolize accomplishing something difficult, it turns out it's a lot more accessible than you'd think. There are a lot of tourists that are not skilled mountaineers who want the picture of them standing on the mountain peak. And the picture that is earned through hard work and the picture that is not, unfortunately, look very similar. And that's why it keeps happening and Everest keeps getting more and more crowded. But we know the journey matters. A delicious cup of coffee without context is not as good as a delicious cup of coffee with effort. I do not believe that taste exists in a vacuum. Narrative context increases the significance of the experience. There is a quality that is earned that is different than the deliciousness that comes from the thing itself. Meaning there is a quality that is earned from the effort of making a good cup of coffee that is separate from the deliciousness of the ground coffee seeds alone. It's all about context. The context in which deliciousness is achieved can be significant for the impact of the deliciousness. The meaning is more impactful because of all that went into you getting there, the journey, as opposed to the outcome. I believe making something and the way you make it is important to enjoying the thing you made. And now I'm going to tell you about how I've been a hypocrite in this respect and what I am currently wrestling with. And this brings me to my second client in Honduras. Ruslan from Silky Drum Coffee. Ruslan is a barista champion. He knows about effort and excellence. He's an unlikely client for me because I like my processing to be effortless. I strive for minimalism and simplicity. When it comes to coffee producers and processing coffee, it has been my goal to get good flavors with as little input as possible. If a client of mine has five steps of coffee processing, I immediately think of how we can reduce that to three steps. My point of view is to see what we can eliminate, what we can subtract. But Ruslan is a maximalist. He doesn't just buy coffee he likes. He traveled 36 hours to get from Moscow to Honduras to process coffee in different ways. He's traveled to this mill, Beneficio Rio Frio, two years in a row. He is deeply invested in the coffee he is buying from Dario Enamorado and his family. Ruslan is so committed to excellence that even though he's had positive results with his experiments, he knew he didn't know what was behind the success and that not knowing made it difficult to replicate. So he hired me to share the fundamentals of fermentation and to see how we can add more controls to the processing. Because if Dario could consistently provide the flavor profile Ruslan wants, then Ruslan can buy more coffee from Dario. Win-win. Last harvest, they tried a method where you place whole coffee cherries in plastic sheets on the drying bed. This hybrid system takes advantage of the natural process, which is generally dominated by yeast, but because it's in a moist environment, you also get participation from many bacteria. I've never liked this method because it's a lot of work for a small amount of exportable coffee at the end. 
It requires a lot of physical surface area and infrastructure. It requires participation from the good weather gods, and it's also very slow. The longer a process takes, the more opportunity for conditions to change, and it makes it difficult to replicate. I believe this is bad for the coffee producer. And it's this tension that I've talked about before between producers and green buyers. The best option for coffee producers is something simple that is easy to replicate and scale up. But because in specialty coffee we are selling on processing and how wild you can make a label, this simple and easy process is not as marketable as something with a complicated name or 10 steps. In some markets, the easier it is for the producer to make, the harder it can be to sell the coffee because it can be seen as boring or simple. The name of the process above is salchicha, the Spanish word for sausage, because the coffee cherries are wrapped in a plastic casing. I'm not sure this name will actually make it to the coffee bag, but that's what it's called in the Beneficio. It's both accurate and whimsical. So I've seen processes get more complicated, more steps, more time, and all of this leads to more inconsistencies and more waste. Many green buyers want to maximize effort for tastiness, but my personal philosophy is that the highest quality coffee is one that is effortlessly tasty. I've thought that if I can just show producers how to replicate that flavor profile in half the time with a quarter of the effort, they would be better off. However, where does that leave producers with clients that want effortful processing? Because if I showed green buyers like Ruslan a way to make the same coffee with a quarter of the effort, he might not believe it was an improvement. In the same way that when Cometeer handed me a tasty cup of coffee for one-tenth the effort, I didn't think it was an improvement. This was a big insight for me. I have been critical of green buyers who make processing more difficult than it needs to be, but it turns out I want the same for my brewing process. My clients are coffee producers, so it benefits them to simplify their processing so that it can be scaled to higher volumes, shortened times for higher throughput, as well as more easily replicated. But producers don't exist in a vacuum either. And I can see now that if the process is too easy, it can turn some buyers away. They can feel left out of the process. They can feel as irrelevant as when I drank instant coffee. I see how modern coffee processing is seen as a co-creation between producer and green buyer. The trend I've seen is towards a collaborative process where green buyers present trendy processing methods to producers. And as I watch Ruslan over the week we spent together, getting his hands dirty with cherries, tying up bags, carrying coffee, I saw that we are not so different. I am like Ruslan. In order to extract the maximum enjoyment of his coffee, he wants it to be effortful. Just like me in brewing, I like to put the effort in. So the male Russian barista champion and the female Guatemalan processing specialist both want the same things at the end of the day. The beneficio is his playground, the kitchen is mine. I understand why many green buyers are trying this approach to direct trade, but I didn't see the appeal for many coffee producers. Usually the cost of hosting visitors can be a burden for some producers. There's transportation costs in addition to the cost of feeding and housing the guests, and not to mention the cost of opportunities of not doing something else. I wasn't a big fan of this model because often I would see producers roll out the red carpet and bend over backwards to host a client that bought five bags of coffee. There is no way the expense of the visit and the additional cost of making a micro lot could cover the cost of the visit. I've also seen that the risk is rarely equal between the parties. Producers use their cherry, their equipment, their people to do small-scale experiments that rarely scale up to production levels. 
Even if green buyers promise to buy the experiment regardless of outcome, they rarely pay the actual cost of production because some of the experimental methods that I have seen are three to five times more expensive than regular processing. Yes, many buyers pay more for these lots, but the cost of production is rarely calculated, and it is rare that a buyer will pay five times more and compensate producers for their time. And even if they promise to buy larger volumes, the protocols they suggest are usually so complicated it's a damn miracle if a coffee producer can replicate the results at a larger scale. But this power dynamic is not what is being played out at Beneficio Rio Frio. Dario is third-generation owner, and his three children, who all help in various aspects of the business, are the fourth. Dario and his wife Olga are completely dedicated to the coffee business. During the week I was there, I saw much of the extended family working and pitching in, aunts and uncles and cousins all working together to make the business a success. They were thrilled to have Ruslan there. He brings creative ideas, and they enjoy experimenting and learning with him. They have a strong foundation, so the experiments are not a distraction to their main business, but a breath of fresh air that reminds them of the parts of the coffee business they enjoy. You guys, I love this family. I was hoping they would adopt me as their fourth child. I can see that they are a good match for what Ruslan is looking for. Both parties benefit from the relationship. Oh, I do have something I want to share which I found hilarious. So, Ruslan's first language is Russian, and he doesn't speak Spanish, but he has learned English. The enamorado family doesn't speak Russian, but some have learned English. So English was the common language. However, when I spoke English, they all found me difficult to understand. So for all the presentations and the communications during the week, I would speak in Spanish and Jose, Dario's son, would translate my Spanish to English for Ruslan. And then Ruslan would translate Jose's English to Russian for his traveling partner who only spoke Russian. It was a hilarious language train to have my work translated to English for me. And this baffled me at first. How could my English be harder to understand? But they explained to me that since English was both Ruslan and Dario's second language, they made the same grammatical errors, and it was easier for them to understand each other's broken English than my standard English. Anyway, we made it work. So where does this leave us? How much should we be efforting in our specialty coffee? When is effortlessness a virtue, and when is it a drawback? I'm still sorting it out for myself, but I wanted to share these thoughts with you, and maybe you can share your thoughts on effort with me during our next Office Hours Live on Discord. Well, here we are, at the end of another episode. Thanks for hanging out with me today, thanks for the patrons who make this show possible, and thanks to my editor and partner Nick for removing all the dog barks and farm noises and trucks... You can find links in the show notes to buy roasted coffee from Silky Drum or green coffee from Dario Enamorado at Finca Rio Frio in Honduras or Cafesmo, also in Honduras. Did you like this episode? If so, join us for more on Patreon. For as little as $3 a month, it's like having a cup of coffee with me. Patreon is where I can interact with listeners, get your feedback and suggestions for future episodes. The patrons make it possible for me to carve time out of my week to make these episodes and to also have them available for free to everyone else. If you see coffee in a different way after listening to the episodes, consider joining and helping me make more. And if you enjoy listening and get value out of these episodes, please share with a friend who loves coffee or wine. If you want to be notified when the next one is coming out, consider subscribing to my free and infrequent newsletter at lucia.coffee, and lucia is L-U-X-I-A. Thanks for listening, and remember, life's too short to drink bad coffee.